Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Simon Brown. Caroline Creeman from AdviceWorks joins me this evening to guide us through all the latest news on global markets. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Tom Mann from ABSA to discuss their global core equity feeder fund. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making headlines. In company news, General Electric's second quarter profits fall by 30%. This due to weakness in its power and renewable energy businesses, which delivered a 58% plunge in profit. On the plus side, helping to offset these losses were gains in its aviation, transportation and healthcare businesses. The company reaffirmed its financial outlook for the year, saying that it continues to expect full year earnings of between $1 to $1.07 per share. Staying with quarterly results, Microsoft's fourth quarter earnings has shot to new all-time highs as its market cap has now topped $800 billion, with the company looking short to cross the $1 trillion mark over the next 12 months. Revenue exceeded the $100 billion mark for the first time this year, driven by the company's efforts to reinvent itself as a major player in the cloud computing space. Amazon's web servers, however, has been the market leader in the cloud computing market, but Microsoft is increasingly cementing its position as a strong second ahead of its rival, Google. In looking at M&A activity, Comcast dropped its $66 billion bid for 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets, clearing the path for Disney to buy Fox's movie studio, cable channels, National Geographic, and Fox's regional sport networks. Comcast, however, says it will still try to buy European broadcaster Sky to boost its international footprint. Here's more on that. Comcast dropped its $66 billion bid for 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets, but it said it would still try to buy European broadcaster Sky to boost its international footprint. Comcast conceded to Walt Disney, which last month sweetened its offer for the Fox assets to over $71 billion. It de-escalates one of the media industry's most high-profile confrontations, pitting Comcast Chief Executive Brian Roberts against Fox Executive Chairman Rupert Murdoch and Disney CEO Bob Iger. Phoenix Group Chief Economist yeah, Max like, Wolf. Yeah, for, for Comcast, it's probably good. Let's them concentrate on the must-have asset and keeps them out of a long, drawn-out struggle that they're likely to lose. And, you know, and they've added some debt to the balance sheet of late. They've been pretty acquisitive, so might be time to take a pause and see how well they are going to do at integrating all the assets they've already purchased. Shares of Comcast and Disney rose on the news. Fox and Sky fell. Benchmark Capital CEO Kevin Kelly. Comcast has rebounded. The, it would have been nice for them to acquire Fox's assets, but they didn't need it. They actually need Sky more. And with Disney, what's what's nice for them is that is that this removes an overhang for them, especially for Bob Iger and succession concerns. With a bid for Sky, Comcast is entering another war with Fox, which owns 39% of the company and made an offer for the remaining share. But Comcast is willing to pay more, valuing it at $34 billion. Caroline Creeman from AdviceWorks joins me. Caroline, thanks for joining us. Results aroma out there. Before we get to that, trade wars are officially happening <laughs> and the market is officially uninterested. NASDAQ hit new highs last week, closed off them. Mm -hmm. S&P getting towards that, that all-time high. Mm. Is this the old story that the market's not the economy? Uh, I think the markets are also anticipating that there'll be an adult in the room when there, when there is a discussion between I mean, the, the politicians will leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, apart from Trump, so there'll be an adult in the room apart apart from from Donald Trump, and and so I think there is going to be talks between the U.S. and the EU on Wednesday. People are hoping that there's going to be a more amicable outcome. 
um, people tend to forget that the EU also has tariffs on imports. Um, you know, sure. it's, it's mainly it's mainly to stop the Japanese and the Koreans <laughs> coming in. So one, I think the market at this point is taking the high road, saying, well, is, is Donald Trump just trying to shake them down to get rid of tariffs entirely, you know, to make the world a more competitive place, or does he just not want German cars? in the US. So I think after Wednesday, we'll see which way it's going to go. That's a fair point. Tariffs are, are, are not new. Let's touch no. on results because there's been a bunch. Uh, Microsoft, which for a very long time mm. was the most, was just a useless company to hold. I think it went, the share price, well, the share price did yes. almost nothing yes. late 90s into around 2010. Such in the Della arrives and, and just reinvents yes. it. They've got the Azure, which is cloud. They've got software as a service, mm. et cetera. I mean, they've, yeah. and of course, they still got Windows and the like. Correct. Really strong set of numbers. So I think Nadella actually said that they, they correctly anticipated markets and trends. And then, of course, taking their Excels and their words and now making a subscription service um, gives them annuity income. Their cloud service grew nearly 90%. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, it's almost doubling. It's, it's, it's and it's no longer yes. a baby. It might no. be number two, but it's no. not like 90 no, is a no, small no, base. No, it's huge. And, um, and it can only grow. I think they're spending $4 billion on new data centers. So, um, and that's really just coming out of cash flow, which this company has. <laughs> and so, so unlike a lot of the, the fangs, it actually has a good cash flow. <laughs> And yeah, sustainable cash flow. It, it's yeah. very much, I mean, in a sense, it's a fang because it's tech and because yeah. it's booming. Yes. But truthfully, it is very much old school. And I saw that interview yes, with Nadella. 43 years old. 43 years old. Um, <laughs> and, and literally, under, under Steve Ballmer, really <laughs> didn't do nothing. Yeah. The interview with, with Nadella was interesting, where he said, yes. look, they identified trends. Yes. Almost in a sense, trying to say, ah, it's not so much me, it's so much. But with it respect, is it is him. It's it identifying is him. the trend. It's, it's doubling down on it. It's putting yeah. Office on iPads Correct. and Macs and yeah. et cetera. It is identifying those trends and, and following them. And it's quite interesting because, I mean, he came from within Microsoft. So you actually expect somebody from external to actually make those types of changes. So if you have to have super CEOs of, of the century, you know, he's certainly one of them. Yeah, and I remember mm. they, they, they did some hand-holding. Steve Ballmer was staying on yes. the board to sort of yeah. monitor him from the corner, which didn't last very no, long when it turned out we didn't yes, need Ballmer in the least. Uh, moving to the other side of results, General Electric, yeah. which was, uh, I want to touch on these bottom draw stocks. Do yes. bottom draw stocks still exist? No. You can buy and hold for no. 80 years? I, I think you need to be very careful because, you know, you're seeing how fast our industries change. I mean, the big stocks now are, are, are companies by and large that didn't exist 15 years mm. ago. So I think that dynamic has changed. I think what hasn't changed is, is look for quality, look for cash flow, um, look for good management. Those things are eternal. Yes. But industries are not necessarily yeah. eternal. In the 80s, I was told four bottom draw stocks. General Electric, mm, General Motors, yeah. worse. Kodak, terrible. Yes. Disney, one worked yeah. out of four. Yeah. Not good. General Electric, uh, the turnaround. I mean, apparently, Jack Walsh is, is stomping around, refusing to go on TV because he will swear. Yeah. Um, but since he left in 2000, the stock is down three quarters. Another tough set of results. Yeah, he was well, very old. <laughs> um, I think and he's probably refrained from criticizing his predecessors quite a lot. But, you know, I'm not too sure about this turnaround. Um, you know, they're getting rid of health care. They're getting rid of other rates and masses. And you can have three pillars of the company. You're going to have, um, 
your renewable energy, you're going to have the, the old energy, which is the coal and the gas, mm -hmm. and you can have aerospace. So if I was buying an aerospace company, I'd rather buy Boeing. Uh, renewable energy, yes, maybe. Sure. But, um, you know, in the oil and gas, I mean, it's just, just a silly division to keep. If you're going to keep something, why would you keep something which is... You know, which is really, really not not performing. I mean, even Siemens, you know, in, in Germany is thinking of actually selling that division out of the company. So I find it very odd strategical decisions. Okay. Yeah. So we can park that aside. Let's yeah. quickly touch Comcast. <coughs> uh, they walked away from the, the deal for 21st Century Fox. We mentioned it mm -hmm. in the intro, leaving it to Disney after helping Disney push their price <laughs> up by almost... Twenty billion dollars, yes. which, as we were saying, off air would be a top five stock in the JSC. <laughs> it's I probably think. a rounding error. <clears throat> it absolutely quite, is, yeah. but it's a really good deal for Disney. They get some quality yes. assets, yeah. and and you can see how it all starts yeah. to fit together for Disney. I think this was one of the last really quality assets out there. That pe that's why people went for it so hard. I mean, they they now get Marvel. Um, you know, they get a whole lot of franchises that they can really build content on. Um, for Comcast, that leaves them to bid for Sky. Yep. Um, Sky is another jewel in the crown. Um, unfortunately, Disney already owns 39% of it. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to see how annoyed Disney is about having to pay an extra $20 billion. Are they really going to make sure that Comcast doesn't get this transaction or are they going to work together? Or are they going to say, well, we already spent $70 billion on a, a massive rump. Let's just let Comcast they have, can a, have it. They can of. have the leavings. But also what it does do is, is Hulu, which we don't have locally. No, no. Hulu now Disney's now got a majority stake yes. in Hulu. It was initially, I think, four or five yeah. companies. They've now got a majority. Um, and that then brings me to Netflix, where mm -hmm. the... Uh, and and yeah, you were saying uh, uh, that, that perhaps it's, it, you know, you'd, we'd be cautious to, to, to sort of call the death of Netflix, because yes. that might kill us, but rip our head off. But certainly <laughs> subscriber growth was modest. They, they, they spent a lot on marketing, and I'm not sure what, they, what their mote is. Well, I wouldn't say subscriber growth is modest because, I mean, it was 5.2 sure, okay. no, million in, in the second quarter. So this is massive. But here's the thing about the market as it is. Because these fangs are so highly valued at the moment, if you miss analysts' expectations, the market's going to hurt you. If you miss your own company's yes. expectations, the market is going to kill you, which is really what, 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 what happened. It was down nearly 15%. So... And, and like I said, I'm very reluctant to call the end of it because I kind of called the end of Netflix a few years ago when it missed subscriber numbers and it went, from, it went to about $10. Um, and then it surprised me. But I do think it's a slightly different environment now. There's a lot more competition. Mm -hmm. There is Amazon. Um, there's YouTube. There's Hulu, as, as you ESPN, mentioned. Disney's going to surely come with a Disney service. Absolutely. So I think the only thing that would really is probably in their favor is that that market is still relatively small um, you know it's about 10% of US subscribers actually actually have Netflix whereas one third actually have a Comcast subscription um, and if you look at but if you look at com um, countries like the UK more people are now signing up for streaming services than actually have a pay TV subscription so there's potentially a lot of growth they've also moved into India and they're predicting that they're going to get about a hundred million new subscribers. Exactly. So if they even hit a quarter of that, I mean, it's still a massive amount of revenue. So I don't write them off too quickly. Um, that's but, a fair but point. Watch the space. And if they yeah. get to 250 million subscribers, $10 a month, yeah. that's approximately two and a half billion yeah. 
per month. Maybe that's their mm. edge ultimately is creating content yeah. for which they need money and maybe we will pay to watch well, Oranges the New Black or whatever they are. You do pay more than the other services uh, and it, it, it theoretically is for that quality content and, and that's another issue. They really need to keep on producing that content. Um, so they are actually spending um, they have about four billion in cash flows, but they're spending eight billion on on new content. Uh, some of it is going into that Indian market. That means that content provision is actually being financed out of debt. So they really need to hit it pretty much all the time, you know, before, before your financials go backwards. Yeah, they they do quickly before we go to break. Yeah. Amazon results later this week. Yes. Maybe we got a hint from from Jour up ninety percent. So Amazon, yes. AWS. Yes. Um, I mean, do we ever count them out? Do we buy ahead of results? I mean, is, is it a stock on your list, or do we just, it's, as I do, yeah. watch and awe? No, look, it's it's definitely a stock on my list, and I think Donald Trump sent out a very nasty tweet today, so the stock is down. So probably an opportunity to buy. Um, I don't think everything is is in the price. I mean, there's it's got so many things going for it. Um, the, Recently bought absolutely. the pillbox or whatever going yes, into drugs, and, and and also you know that they're they're a small player in in the digital marketing space. They only have about three percent of of that uh, that marketing spend, but suppliers are increasingly realizing that in order to actually get their product seen on Amazon, they're going to have to advertise. And that's such a small amount of revenue now for Amazon. It's that's about two tiny. billion. But people are expecting this to grow to about 22 billion in the next few years. So it's a, just an additional source of revenue. Look, it's my pick for the first trillion dollar company. Most, most folks on Apple, I'm with Amazon. Yeah, I, won't, I won't disagree with you. <laughs> they're in second place, but I think they can yeah. do it. And heck, they might do it this week. We're going to a short break. When we come back, we'll take a look at the Absa Global Core Equity Feeder Fund with Tom Mann. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio, Caroline Creeman from AdviceWorks. Joining us on the line from London to discuss the ABSA Global Core Equity Feeder Fund is Tom Mann. Tom, thanks very much for joining us on the line. Uh, I want to kick off a, a, a bit around the fund. Obviously, a, a feeder fund, this is going then going into, in, in, into one of the, the, the Schroeder funds. How is that, that, that process from an ABSA perspective of deciding I suppose, which funds to, to feed into in terms of, of, of uh, is it performance, is it costs, is it regulatory issues? Hi, Simon. Thanks very much for the opportunity to, uh, to speak to you today. Um, I think primarily the main driver is um, long-term investment performance. Um, so this particular fund which we run at Schroeder's has a track record which goes back to the year 2000 um, and has outperformed over an 18-year period. Um, and particularly in, in 14 out of those 18 years, we've managed to beat the, uh, beat the benchmark. So I think, I think the main um, driver behind the decision in terms of which fund to go for has been um, related to long-term investment performance. And truthfully, I mean, Schroeder, in the industry, very well known, very large asset management. I think a lot of, of, of private clients, perhaps, not a brand that's particularly well known. That in no way detracts from them, um, but it does show that, that we've got some giant asset managers out there that perhaps, certainly locally in South Africa, we're perhaps less aware of. Sure, absolutely. And I think, um, I think this is something which, you know, certainly Schroeder's is very, is very focused on. We realize that perhaps in South Africa we are less... Uh, well known, we have people on the ground now in South Africa. Um, but I'd point out we're, a, we're a, an organisation that has a long history. It goes back to the early 1800s, um, where we've been, you know, involved with, in terms of helping people invest um, over a 200-year period. 
Yeah, okay, 200 years, that, that's a long track record indeed. Let, let's delve into it. The, 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 the thinking behind the fund, is it very much, is it more sort of bottom-up investing? Is it, is it more top-down? Are you looking at geographies and, and looking for stocks there? Or are you just looking for quality and you're relatively agnostic as to perhaps the geography in which they're domiciled in? Well, I think a number of questions there. I think, first of all, it's, it's fair to say we're very much bottom-up investors. But the way that we run things in QEP, QEP stands for quantitative equity products. So effectively, we view ourselves as being fundamentally minded investors, but using the computer to do a lot of heavy work um, and a lot of the heavy lifting for us. And we view it very much as, as human beings are good at doing some things, particularly solving unstructured problems and, you know, involving lateral thinking, etc. And then computers are also very, very good at doing very, very routine, mundane tasks. So we look to combine the best of both worlds, putting together the human being with the computer and uh, coming up with an optimal portfolio. So effectively what we look for um, in stocks is we look for two things. We look for quality. And by that, we mean high levels of profitability, which are stable over time and a balance sheet, which is appropriate for the business. And we also look for value. Um, therefore, we're looking for companies which are basically trading on um, some kind of discount towards, uh, towards intrinsic value. And then effectively, using particularly a decision tree methodology, we look to trade the one-off against the other um, using a computer. So effectively, we end up having a portfolio which has a large number of names, and it typically we run with about 500 names plus in this particular strategy. Um, but that's very much an advantage of using the computer. The computer is able to highlight um, a number of different investment opportunities, which we as human beings wouldn't be able to identify, um, particularly with regard to the number of opportunities that we'd be able to find. That's yeah, a fair shot. I mean, in essence, if I'm understanding, your computer does, I suppose, the grunt work. So as an example, you would say, find me stocks with a debt to equity below 50 and an ROE above 20. It brings those back. You then bring the human touch in to say, well, what are the prospects of this company? Will it, you know, has it got a 20-year potential life cycle, et cetera, to add that, 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 that thought process on top of the, the pure analytical? Sure. I think, I think that's fair. I think that the, the point that I'd really um, emphasize is that I think um, quantitative investing um, is, is only able to do as well as the data it's able to use. So I think, and we in QEP very much think that you need a human being as, um, as part of the control in that process. So even though our models um, may suggest a large number of trades to us on a daily basis, at the end of the day, we have a human being who is literally pulling the, pulling the trigger on every single trade. So I'm a portfolio manager on a number of strategies in our, in our London office. Um, for those strategies, there is, you know, literally it requires me to physically okay each individual trade um, that, the, uh, that the computer is, is suggesting. And for that, I'm using my own fundamental experience um, in terms of whether deciding, you know, the quant in this instance has got it right. I can understand why it's wanting to buy this particular stock versus in some instances it might be that I turn the trade down and say, well, hang on, I don't think the quant is getting this, um, this particular instance right. We need to override the quant on this basis. Okay, so in this case, the humans are still in charge. I want to quickly touch uh, regional allocation. Uh, a lot to the U.S., 63.4%. One of the points that a lot of people make when I chat to them is I talk region, and they're like, sure, that's domiciled, but let's not kid ourselves. The S&P 500 as an index is, is, is a global index. Half of its revenue is beyond the borders. Are, are you, you know, is that a conscious decision to be overweight North America, or is it a case of that's where the quality is? And Apple, for example sells iPhones everywhere. Absolutely. I think 
So, so first of all, um, the fund focuses on quality and value, and the U.S. tends to be a very high-quality market. The companies there tend to generate strong, stable returns on their invested capital over time, and that's you know an attribute with, that we uh, that we very much like. Um, this particular strategy is rough, is, is 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 relatively highly constrained with regard to geographic allocation, so we can move within two and a half percent of the benchmark's allocation. Um, on on a particular region or a particular sector, but having said that, um, you know you're absolutely right in terms of the um, I- your remarks with regard to the geographic um, um, exposure of individual companies, uh, and that's not just necessarily the United States. It's also a big issue, but let's say for the UK, where, for example, if you look at a company like Shell or a company like BP, um, the UK you know it has very little to do with their business i mean it's a it's a, a sizable part of their business but by no means does it dominate um the um their, their business the same you can say for exactly the same for let's say um uk pharmaceutical companies um GlaxoSmithKline AstraZeneca etc a big chunk of their earnings actually come from outside the uk in fact the majority of it comes from the us so geographical exposure while important is something that we tend to look through um, with our quality, with our particular models, and we tend to focus more just on the underlying earnings and earnings potential of the companies. Carolyn, if I can ask you quick, I mean, when we talk offshore in South Africa, typically we mean either Europe or the US. But how much do you do you look through to to where these companies are actually earning their profit? People will say, you know, Apple, America, yeah, but as I say, a lot of those phones are sold in Europe, South Africa, and China. It's actually very difficult to do. In fact, it's almost impossible because the currency effects are going to be different for every company, just depending on what they're doing and where. So once you start to unpick, um, even if you try to unpick some of the larger companies, it, it's it's going to take you hours. So I think people just look, well, let's be globally diverse, um, let the currency impacts, they'll, they'll revert to their mean over time and just really pick quality companies. That's a good point. Tom, do you, do you worry about the currencies? Obviously, you're going to have some euros, you're going to have some yens. Do you hedge the currencies or do you take the view that over time, it'll shake out and it'll all come, come right in the end. It, it's a great question, Simon, and I think it depends very much on the currency um, that you're dealing with. So, particularly when you're when you're dealing with hard currencies, so dollars, euros, sterling, Swiss francs, yen, um, they tend to trade in fairly tight ranges um, against each other. I mean, you, you will get the odd move. Uh, for example, the Swiss National Bank, when they delinked their currency a couple of years ago, there was a fairly large move in the Swiss franc. But by and large, those currencies don't tend to move that strongly against each other, particularly over the short term. However, there are currencies where big moves are particularly can be the order of the day. And to give the example of, of, of Russia, uh, the Russian ruble um, has been extremely volatile over the last um, last number of years. And so from our perspective, if we look at, let's say if, we, if the quant is examining a Russian bank, for example, and we'd be you know, looking at things like, as you mentioned before, the return on equity, um, we'd be looking at the valuation, we'd be looking at um, the level of deposit funding, how secure is the level of funding, is there an over-reliance on wholesale funding, etc. And then we'd look at the valuation, and we could come up with a decision to buy into that stock. But effectively, what you're buying into there mostly is cash flows that are denominated in rubles. So in that instance, what we would um, we would look to do, first of all, we'd look to cap the overall position that we have in the portfolio by saying, look, there's some other risks going on here. The currency, when you're buying a Russian bank from the perspective of a U.S. dollar investor, currency matters a lot more. Um, and then secondly, what we'd look then to do is once we cap that position, we would also tend to aggregate 
um, all of the other, let's say, Russian holdings that we have and look at the overall position that we have in the portfolio and say, look, are we running a large um, ruble risk here, for example? And that, be, that may be something which we would look to um, hedge um, in addition to that. Uh, quickly, before we, before we run out of time, your, your top four holdings, Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, seven odd percent of the fund, very tech focused. Truth is, we've seen already from Microsoft's numbers, uh, they cont they're continuing, these, these tech stocks are continuing to generate the profits and to generate proper old school cash flows. Sure, absolutely. And I mean, in terms of the, um, uh, particularly in terms of a, a, a company like Apple, um, we, we have a quality model um, which evaluates the quality of the business. And um, Apple ranks very, very highly um, in that. And as you say, the profit generation there um, is strong, as it is with Alphabet. And even, you know, I think you look at something like Microsoft, which you look at 10 years ago, you probably thought it was dead and buried in terms of its business in decline. Uh, they've managed to reinvent themselves, um, particularly with emphasis on the cloud, data centers, etc. Um, and once again, we see strong earnings being generated there. So you are right. There is, if you look at you know global earnings about where the where the where the earnings growth is being generated, tech is is where it is at the moment. Caroline, it absolutely tech is where it's at. But and this is this is not 1999. This is real stuff. This is. I mean, we're talking Microsoft. These companies are making the profits. They, they have cash flows. They have cash this flows. This is the biggest difference. They have cash flows. They have a business case. They have a market. Um, they've got a growing market, so very much not like the tech bubble. No, not like the tech bubble at all. Actual, real, proper, mm. not pets.com, no. where the business model was to sell pet food at a loss and somehow yes. turn that around. <laughs> That's the show for this week. My thanks to our guests, Caroline Creeman, Portfolio Manager at Advi AdviceWorks, Tom Mann, Portfolio Manager at ABSA. Thanks you very much for watching. I'll catch you same time, same place next week. Have a good evening. <laughs>